Welcome to the AKC Podcast, an audio resource for staff at King's College London following the Associateship of King's College programme. The AKC is an inclusive, research-led programme of lectures which explore diverse religious and cultural perspectives. For more information, visit kcl.ac.uk forward slash AKC. This semester's lecture series, entitled Power to the People, Identity, Difference and Inequality, has been coordinated by Dr Kate Kirkpatrick. Handouts, presentation slides and further reading links for this lecture are available on the AKC Keats area. Okay, thank you all for coming today. And welcome to this series on power to the people, identity, difference, and inequality. I'm assuming that you're here today because you read the little blurb about what we're going to cover this semester, and there was enough of interest in it to you to make you curious. And so what I want to do today is share a bit of my vision for the semester, and also give you a very aerial view picture of some debates in questions about identity and identities. What I mean by an aerial view is that I'm going to start with Aristotle, whose use of the word identity meant something radically different from many of the common uses today. I'm going to spend a little bit of time in the ancient world before jumping to the 20th century and then the 21st, because over the course of this semester, you're going to have the opportunity to listen to people who are interested in what we might call identities from the point of view of institutional diversity and inclusion initiatives, or from the point of view of identities that are affected by things like dislocation or religious diaspora. I want to kind of give you a large picture frame, if you like, for the kinds of discussions that are going to come in later weeks. So what we're going to begin with is identity and philosophy. I'm going to briefly say something about what the metaphysics of identity has been, classically speaking. Then I'm going to talk about personal identity and political identity. Now, these slides are going to be made available online. All of the things that I refer to in the course of the slides are listed in the works cited at the end, so don't feel you have to scramble to get it all down. I'm also going to talk about skepticism about identity claims. I'm going to talk about people who are skeptical of personal identity. And I'm going to talk about people who are skeptical about the value of identity politics. And I'm going to conclude finally with a couple of important distinctions that I think are important to take with us as a community of learners. So questions of identity are of significant political import in this country as well as others today. And I think that as a learning community at King's, one of the things that I hope participating in this series might help achieve is a kind of conversation about very difficult subjects that concern us at intimate personal levels as well as public political ones. So to begin, identity in philosophy. If you asked Aristotle what identity means, he would say the fact that a thing is itself. A logician would look at this and say an identity claim is x equals x. But where human beings are concerned, identity seems a little bit more confused. We exist in time. The way we perceive ourselves at a certain point in our lives may be rather different from the way we perceive ourselves later on. We know now things that Aristotle didn't about how quickly our cells are regenerated. The matter that it makes us up literally isn't the same from one decade to the next. Moving forward a few centuries to uh, someone who shaped the Christian tradition, the North African theologian, St. Augustine, 
is often taken to have presented a new vision of personal identity in his discussion of the self, and in particular in his discussion in Book 10 of the Confessions, where he explores memory and the human capacity to look back on its past with a sort of strangeness, to see it as who I am, but at the same time, not who I am. So what emerged in more recent philosophy, and by more recent I mean the last 500 years, was what philosophers often refer to as the problem of personal identity. What does it mean for a human being to be themselves? Is there some kind of essence of who we are? Is there a fate that determines us so that whatever we think choice is, is actually an illusion? Or are we free to shape ourselves and our futures? Now these questions are very old questions. If you read uh, the ancient Greek playwrights and poets, you know, in, in Homer, for example, you get gray-eyed Athena, these gods and goddesses with epithets who are shaping the path of the, the heroes who unfold their destiny. But it provokes anxiety in human beings because it's unclear to us how much we are free to shape our paths and how much our paths are shaped to the extent that we can't but choose to follow them. Taking a more social approach to the question, philosophers have often wondered what role does being oneself play in leading an ethical life or human flourishing, especially if you take into account the social nature of human life. Is it possible that to pursue my own flourishing inevitably comes at the expense of others' flourishing? Or can human beings collectively attempt to flourish? We often find being with other humans limiting and frustrating and demeaning. And so there's this old tension in philosophy about whether or not it is a good thing to feel seen, uh, or be seen even, or whether, as Ovid put it, to live well, you must live unseen. So I think I want to start with these old questions to show that throughout the tradition of philosophy, there's been a lot of disagreement about what it means to be a self, whether in our social lives it's valuable to be seen by others, or whether actually it's valuable to keep something hidden if you want to thrive. So I'm going to skip forward quite a lot now to some thinkers who are famous for their thoughts on authenticity. And I'm going to talk mostly about Sartre and Beauvoir, Jean-Paul Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir, the French existentialists, because they're people on whom a lot of my research focuses and because I think they've contributed some interesting insights and disagreements to the kinds of questions you're going to explore over the rest of the semester. So the ideal of authenticity stretches back much farther than the 1940s. There are different historical narratives about how long humans have aspired to be authentic. But I'm going to focus on this one in particular because I think it encapsulates some tensions in human experience, individual and collective, that can help us think about where we position ourselves with respect to questions of identity, personal and political. So Jean-Paul Sartre is a skeptic about personal identity. He's famous for two slogans. One is that existence precedes essence, and the other is that hell is other people. What he means by the former is that no general, non-formal account of what it means to be human can be given, since the meaning of being human is decided in and through existing itself. So existence for Sartre is a process of self-making. You are perpetually in the process of becoming who you are rather than something fixed 
and faded. Another way of putting this is to say that one's identity isn't exclusively constituted by nature or by nurture, since to exist is to make your identity. Now, in Sartre's philosophy, there's a, there are a lot of jargonistic terms, and the terms are terms that you also find in philosophers like Heidegger and Simone de Beauvoir, but they use the same word without the same meaning. And so I'm going to introduce you to a couple of different meanings in Sartre and Beauvoir because I think their disagreement is very interesting. One of the words, the concepts that both use, is facticity. And what Sartre means by facticity is all of the contingent and unchosen properties that a third-person investigator could discover about you. So these include things like weight, height, skin color, sex, race, class, nationality, when, where I was born, when and where I live, my family, and included in this bundle for Sartre, writing in 1943, I hasten to add, is my past. My past actions become unchangeable givens on Sartre's view. You can renegotiate the meaning of your past, but you can't change the fact that it happened. So Sartre wants to recognize the importance of these things because he knows how common it is to human experience to dislike the way that facticity can shape interactions with others. And this leads to the second of Sartre's famous slogans. Hell is other people. This is from his play, No Exit. One of the things that's very interesting about Sartre and Beauvoir is that they wrote literature as well as straightforward philosophical texts. So the play, No Exit, with this famous quip, gets quoted in a lot of political pieces, especially since 2016, I think. And the philosophy that it's exploring had been written already in texts called Being and Nothingness. And in Being and Nothingness, Sartre was doing something which was pretty unprecedented in Western philosophy, which was reflecting philosophically about embodiment. So one of the legacies of a lot of philosophy in the European canon is that it had a kind of, if not a straightforward dualism about the mind and body, a dismissiveness towards the body as a less serious matter of investigation, as a philosophical topic. I mean, obviously the sciences explored the body. And in 1943, in Being and Nothingness, Sartre gives this phenomenology of the body where he distinguishes between three levels. So the body as you live it unselfconsciously, that's the body that is feeling the temperature of the room that you're sitting in, hearing the ambient noises, and feeling the light. The second, on the other hand, is the body as an instrument or object of study. So you can recognize your body at this level in the sense that you can abstractly acknowledge that you have endocrine glands. It's probably not something that you're perceptually aware of in this moment, in the same way that you're aware of the temperature of the room that you're sitting in. But your body, you recognize, can be an object of study or an instrument of engagement with the world. But the third level is the body for others as it's seen by others. And at this level, Sartre thinks that we suffer at the hands of each other, in part because of what I'm calling facticity reductionism, which is in cases where you're seen by other people with a gaze that reduces you to a certain part of your facticity, which could be something weightier, like only seeing you as female or black, or that arrogant guy, or to take a more trivial example, that girl who always posts cat photos on Instagram. So if somebody reduces you to a single dimension of your facticity, you can experience them as hell on that account. And part of the reason for this is because people don't perceive the world in the same ways. And we can find it estranging to see the world and ourselves in it from this perspective that takes us in ways that we don't want to be taken. What Sartre thinks this shows us is that each human being is not only a first-person perspective on the world, 
but there's an aspect of our existence which is for others. And when others reduce us to objects, we experience them as hell in this figurative language. We also experience what he calls anxiety, following Kierkegaard and Heidegger and other existentialists who are famous for discussing angst, existentialist angst. And this is not a psychological phenomenon. So the word anxiety in this tradition should be distinguished from the kind of medicalized anxiety that's prevalent now. It's an existential mood, and I'm going to explain more about what is meant by this. So he gives, Sartre gives an example in, in his War Diaries. He gives a couple of examples in Being in Nothingness, but I think the one in the War Diaries is funnier. Sartre thinks that we feel anxiety because once we realize that we are free to make ourselves in the world, but we're responsible for constantly being the self in the process of being made in existence, and it feels like a huge weight to be responsible for making yourself become the kind of person you want to be. And so he thinks that a lot of people flee that responsibility in bad faith. And the responsibility is apprehended in anxiety because every time you want to make a decision, you can't make a decision in this moment for all of the relevant points in your future when you're gonna to need to keep doing something in order to make it happen. So the example he gives in the War Diaries is that he, was, he served in the Meteorological Corps in the early 1940s in the Second World War, and he had relatively light duties. All he had to do was to take some observations in the morning and to take some observations in the evening. And so he had seven hours a day to read and write, which is part of the reason he was so intellectually productive during that period. He was in military service, but he had lots of unoccupied time, officially at any rate, which he filled with reading and writing. He also had his teacher's salary, and so he would go to lunch every day in this nice Alsatian cafe, and have a nice French lunch with some red wine and some bread. And he determined that his clothes were no longer fitting well. And so he decided that he was going to have to take action if he wanted them to continue to fit. So he decided he was not going to have the wine or the bread. That was it. That was what he was going to have to do. But he goes to the restaurant the next day, having made this decision, and the waitress brought him his favorite wine and a basket of bread before he even had a chance to deny it. And in this moment, he realized something that he thinks has much more serious implications when the context isn't wine and bread, that you have to make decisions over and over and over again to achieve some of the kinds of things you want to be as a self in time. So you have to remake your choice of self because in the moment when you sit down at the table, you can always say, past me was wrong about wine and bread present me thinks they should be eaten. He gives another example, a creative example of writing a book. The book doesn't materialize out of nowhere. Essays don't materialize out of nowhere. You have to do the process of thinking, planning, creating, writing, editing, and you have to recommit yourself to each stage of making something like that if you want to achieve the end that you desire. So in view of the anxiety that we can experience on account of our freedom and, the, and on account of the fact that we can reject our past decisions as irrelevant and misguided. Sartre thinks that we avoid recognizing our freedom. He says that anxiety arises because we are condemned to be free, that we are always in the process of choosing what kind of self we want to be. But it's a burden, so we indulge in one of two poles of selfhood, facticity or freedom. So I've said a lot about facticity already, now, freedom is a very contested and central concept in Sartre's philosophy, but it's, it's very voluntarist in his philosophy. You are free to make what you will of yourself. And so he thinks, whatever your situation, you are free 
to make yourself what you want to be. However, he's not saying that no limitations are constraining. So he gives a famous example in Being in Nothingness, which is the example of a waiter. And so I think that the quickest way to, to gloss Sartre's example is to say that if the waiter thinks that the waiter can only ever be a waiter, then the waiter is in bad faith because he has over-identified with his facticity. He has taken his past and, and all of the, the kinds of projects of his past to determine the future that lies before him. On the other hand, if the waiter were to be in a freedom-emphasizing bad faith, then that might be something like applying to be a CEO and think it's completely irrelevant that his work experience consists of being a waiter and that he's got a great chance of getting a job as a CEO. So Sartre thinks that it's very difficult to correctly ascertain how much weight should be given to one's facticity and how much weight should be given to one's freedom to transcend, to use the language of the time, that facticity. But that is what authenticity is for Sartre. If you correctly hold and balance your freedom to make yourself through existence and your facticity, which has all of the contingent and unchosen things about you, that is authenticity. So enter Simone de Beauvoir. Beauvoir and Sartre had a long intellectual discussion, and over the 1930s, one of the things that they kept disagreeing about was his concept of freedom, because Beauvoir thought it wasn't adequate to the kinds of situations in life that some people find themselves in. So the thing that she said to him in the 1930s is, what kind of freedom can a woman in a harem achieve? If you are literally constrained physically from liberating yourself, then what, what does making the most of your situation look like on that picture? So in 1944, Beauvoir published a book called Pyrrhus and Sinius, which criticized Sartre's concept of freedom, and she drew on Descartes, Descartes' discussions of freedom, because Descartes said that there's a distinction between freedom as something, that, something abstract that all human beings possessed, and power, which is the concrete ability to do what you want to with that abstract freedom. A woman in a harem may be free in the sense that all human beings are free, but she does not have the power to shape her situation in the same way that a free man in Paris does. Beauvoir also disagreed with Sartre about this question of being seen. So one of the things that Sartre said in Being in Nothingness, which is the theoretical justification for the kind of comical quip that hell is other people, is that relationships between human beings always oscillate between mastery and slavery. So he's using Hegelian language there, which many people find and have found offensive, but that's the language that he uses in Being in Nothingness. And so Sartre thought that, that we're always oscillating in our relationships with others between being in a subject position or an object position, and that no reciprocity was ever possible. Beauvoir disagreed on this front as well. She said that when we feel the gaze of other people looking at us, it's not always objectifying and ethically problematic. In fact, sometimes we look to others to encourage us in pursuing the kind of self that we want to be in the future. So at the level of the concept of freedom and on the level of what it's like to be with others, there's some significant disagreements between these two. But what Beauvoir introduced in The Second Sex and in some of her ethical works from the 1940s was this concept of situation, which says that since situations are different, so are freedoms. To acknowledge the abstract freedom of all humanity, 
is inadequate when you take into account the ways that people's situations have been constrained by history and culture and legislation. Now, Beauvoir's position was developed in the 1940s in dialogue with her friend Richard Wright and his wife Ellen, and also with Gunnar Myrtle's text, An American Dilemma, which was published in the 1940s because the American government thought that the, the problem of race in the States uh, was too hot to be studied by an American sociologist. So they brought someone in from Sweden to write this report. It, obviously, it was a collaborative enterprise, and it came out in the 40s just before Beauvoir made some trips in 1946 and 47. And so this discussion of race in America was an interlocutor in the formation of her ideas in the second sex, which later inspired second wave feminists. Now, one of the things that Beauvoir took away from this conversation, I should add actually that an American dilemma was, was cited in the famous case Brown versus Board of Education. So it's a really significant text in the development of, well, in, in the civil rights movement and other things in the States, although they're not perfect. In the ethics of ambiguity, Beauvoir continues to develop this concept of situation. She says that, quote, every individual may practice his freedom inside his world, but not everyone has the means of rejecting, even by doubt, the values taboos, and prescriptions by which he is surrounded. In the second sex, she focused on the values, taboos, and prescriptions concerning women in French society. Uh, this text was published in 1949, a mere five years after French women got the right to vote, uh, and four years after they first exercised it. And Beauvoir came to the conclusion that women were persistently looked at in ways that reinforced their lack of concrete power in the world, and that they were socially encouraged to look to or conform to others' imaginations in ways that prohibited them from becoming themselves freely. So if you see the self as a project, and you think that every human being has some kind of desire to be recognized or seen truly, but you also think that culture perpetuates problematic ways of looking at other human beings, then you might agree with some of what Beauvoir had to say, even though it was written a long time ago, because she thought culture perpetuated problematic structures of power, even when legislation claimed to redress it. So authenticity for Beauvoir is different from authenticity for Sartre, because she thought that it wasn't just a person's facticity and freedom that had to be taken into account. The situation in which they wanted to do what they wanted to do with their lives also mattered, because recognizing that all situations involve other human beings was an important part of her philosophy. And she was of the view that it's incoherent to value your own freedom without valuing the freedom of others. So in Sartre, you have someone who thinks that reciprocity is impossible, at least in this early Sartre. Later on, he would change his view. And in Beauvoir's case, you have someone who thinks we have to value other people's freedom if we want to value our own freedom. And we need to look at this collectively, instead of seeing the question of our authenticity as something that only concerns me, my past, and my future. Since the self is relational, on her view, your authenticity must always take other people into account. Now, there's an amazing conversation between existentialists and people in different parts of the globe. So, Franz Fanon asked Sartre to write the preface to one of his books. And I'm not going to say that much about Fanon today because the final lecture of the series is going to bring more Fanon into this conversation. And in the, in the United States, James H. Cohn 
criticized Sartre heavily for talking about this dialect, the Hegelian dialectic of mastery and slavery from the comfort of a Parisian cafe instead of from the perspective of someone whose ancestors had been slaves and whose children still sang songs that were the kind of freedom songs of that period in American history. So there's a lot of debate that was generated between these thinkers. And I want to pause on that for a moment because I think it's a really interesting period in philosophy and conversations between philosophy and religion, where you have people saying, look, these concepts are powerful, but you've missed them. You've missed it from the point of view from people who are living. And there's engagement and there's changing of minds. And I, I think you know universities are ideally supposed to be places where we can follow dialogues and disagreements in order to help us find better uh, our own views. Okay, so moving up to 2018. This book by Francis Fukuyama is one of a couple of popular books that came out last year criticizing identity <coughs> politics for taking us in the wrong direction politically. In that book, he credits Simone de Beauvoir with introducing the, the term lived experience into English in the second sex, and he takes issue with the way that lived experience has been used as a kind of intellectual trump card by certain groups of people in society. So identity politics is a completely different bundle of questions in one sense from questions of personal identity and authenticity. If you take the question, who do I want to be? What does it mean to say that I am myself? There are lots of different answers that you can find in the history of philosophy. But suddenly, of late, there's been a lot of questions arising from discourses of identity politics about who I can be in view of my facticity. Am I prohibited from becoming a certain kind of person just because of what I am? Do I face harder odds? Now, in the discourse about identity politics, what I'm going to say to you today is building a lot on Charles Taylor's very influential 1994 piece, The Politics of Recognition, which is going to be on Keats for you all. And many politicians of recognition trace this to Hegel or back a bit farther than Hegel to Rousseau and to changes in society resulting from industrialization with the idea being that it used to be the case that your identity was tied to the kind of place that you occupied in society. So if you were a Miller's daughter, for example, then your place in the social order was fixed in your role as Miller's daughter. It was unlikely that you would aspire to travel somewhere else and be a travel writer for Condé Nast. But today things are a bit different. People move. And when people move, they bring histories with them that are individual and collective. So there's a lot of different narratives that people have offered for the rise of identity politics. And I'm just going to give you one because I think it's playing out in interesting ways now. So in identity politics, as Taylor discusses it, identity means something like a person's understanding of who they are or of their fundamental defining characteristics as a human being. And identity politics matters because it seems as though, following on the, the kinds of objections raised by Beauvoir and by others in colonial contexts and post-slavery contexts, it seems as though many people are prevented from being who they are because they are held in a gaze that oppresses them. And for a long time, they have lacked the vocabulary to talk about their oppression and the ways that they have felt that their possibilities in life are constrained by the societies in which they're becoming themselves. But what's happened is that there have been diverging developments 
and the politics of equal recognition. So most people are committed to equality if you ask them, but concretely, what it means to be equal is a question that lacks a single answer. And on the one hand, you have found a development of something which Taylor calls the politics of dignity. So in societies where you had hierarchies that were respected, I'm, I'm not saying that this is uh, the respect is something we should continue to do, uh, but the, if you had a monarchy and you had different orders of society, these societies conceived of themselves as being honor-based societies, and the honor was proportionate to the rank, or the honor might have been proportionate to the achievement of the person. There's a really interesting line in Rousseau where he talks about, in the discourse on the origin of inequality, where he says, corruption and injustice come into society when people want preferential esteem. If you want to be esteemed more highly than others, and if that desire to be esteemed more highly than others is fed by societies, then you get a kind of politics of corruption on the basis of preferential esteem. So to counter that preferential esteem, there's the politics of equal dignity, and it's a universalist politics because all citizens possess this equal dignity. And all citizens, as the declarations of rights of different nations were set up, were supposed to have equal rights and entitlements on account of their equal dignity as human beings. And in fact, this, is, this kind of narrative of equal dignity played an important role in the civil rights movements of the United States, among others. On the other hand, you have the politics of difference, and modern notions of identity often play into these politics because they emphasize our differences. It's also universalist because the claim here is a claim that everyone should be recognized for his or her or their unique identity. But the demand is different because the kind of recognition that the politics of difference wants isn't based on the equal dignity of all human beings but on the particular features of an individual or a particular group. Now this is showing, this kind of, these divergent developments show disagreement about two very fundamental questions. What kind of recognition do people want? Do they want recognition as human? Or do they want recognition as particular humans with all of the facticity bundle that that particular human has? What kind of quality do people want? Do they want equality on the basis of rights and entitlements? Or do they want some other kind of equality? Do they want equality of access to basic physical needs? Do we want to say that our bare minimum for equality should be to eradicate poverty as opposed to to get people uh, in proportional representation on the C-suite? Like, what's most important to achieve in terms of equality is not a subject about which people are united. And these politics have led to radically different types of legislation. So today, to give you two examples, France has gone down the line of the dignity politics, and the French view is that there is one race, it is the human race. They have a so-called colorblind model of public policy, quote, France shall be an indivisible secular democratic and social republic. It shall ensure the equality of all the citizens before the law without distinction of origin, race, or religion. On their view, Distinction, in this sense, is discrimination. So if you were asked to fill out a form, like many British people are when they apply for jobs or university places, that would be illegal in France because it is considered discriminatory to ask people to declare their race. Francois Hollande, in 2012, in his campaign for president, included a promise to remove the word race from the French constitution because it was seen to be a legacy of a past in which people were looked at with the wrong kind of eyes. 
In the UK, by contrast, the Equality Challenge Unit, which informs a lot of HE policy, states that race is a social construct, which is a particular understanding of what race could be, and that the use of terms concerning race and ethnicity depends, quote, on the context in which you are using them, why you are using them, and how you have decided which terms to use. The ECU is focused on advancing equality and eliminating discrimination, and as a consequence, regularly refers to the barriers and discrimination faced by minority ethnic groups. And it advises the use of BME, acknowledging the limitations of this label and the need for data disaggregation in some contexts. And the reason that some people object to this language is because nobody, well, I shouldn't say nobody, that's far too generalizing for a philosopher. <laughs> uh, most people identify with a particular group rather than with the label BME, which is a governmental shorthand. And so people have particular histories. And the data that we have for people from different parts of the world is different. So to bundle everybody into this group seems to just reinforce a certain binary where you have white people and BME people. So it's unclear from the viewpoint of many people themselves who belong to minority groups that these ways of going forward are the best. So in France, you have a lot of people who object to the idea that French legislation is colorblind. It seems to be deeply problematic. In the UK, there are objections on various bases. And from the American context, I just thought it would be interesting to flag for you all since there's this Turbine Hall piece that's coming this week to the Tate Modern by Carol Walker. She's an American artist and she says that the only thing people want to hear from her is about slavery because apparently the only thing I am is black. So she's made some art which is, you know, acute social commentary on America's past, but she ends up feeling like a token in a certain respect on account of the way this art is received. You can read the whole piece, it's uh, cited in there. So different ways of dealing with the question generate different problems and context matters. So I've wanted to draw to your attention a couple of texts if this is a subject that you'd like to read about more. On the one hand, Linda Martin Alcoff argues that visible identities, the kinds of identities that arise on accounts of things of, such as race and gender are under-theorized on her view. She disagrees with the idea that race is a social construct, and she thinks that a lot of the discourse in public uh, could be improved by paying attention to the kinds of experiences that, of discrimination that many have. So you have people who think that identity politics, under a certain conception of what particular concepts mean, is a valuable way of informing politics and making a more just society. But you also have people who are skeptical of these claims. So Apia, for example, in this book, The Lies That Bind, which came out last year, uh, says that he thinks identity is constantly in the making, not just for individuals, but for societies, and that as the world continues to be changed by globalization, the kinds of questions about identity that have been asked in the 20th century need to be updated. So a few slides back, I had this picture of Richard Wright, who is someone with whom Simone de Beauvoir had a lot of conversations in the 40s and afterwards. And Richard Wright was in a mixed-race marriage when Beauvoir visited them in New York in the 1940s because she was with her friend Ellen and Richard, and that meant two white women and one black man on a New York sidewalk. Taxi cabs would pass them by. So in the, in the evening, she would go to parties where like Charlie, Charlie Chaplin and Le Corbusier and the great and the good of the New York intellectual and artistic life were. And on the, by day, taxis would pass her by because she was standing there with a black man. And I think the kind of question that Apio wants us to ask is what about 
their daughter, Richard and Ellen's daughter, in the 1940s to be the child of a black man and a white woman was to have conflicted allegiances. And it wasn't just like that then. Many people feel conflicted allegiances or conflicted identities now. I mean, I have a cousin who's half Thai Buddhist and half New York Jew. So there, many people don't fit into a single box anymore. And so they don't know where they go. <laughs> so what about Richard Wright's daughter? In this context, single individuals often feel fidelity to or even conflicts between a lot of religious identities, whether they are religious, national, cultural, racial, class-based, etc. It's quite common in modern life to feel torn, or to feel confused at any rate, because in addition to this, we have geographical fidelities. Place plays a huge role in who we are. Where you were a child can leave a lasting legacy on you, but the longer you live in a different place, the more you might feel that home is a complicated word. I think there's a danger in some of the discourse about identity politics that there can be a kind of ironic imperialism. And this is not a claim I make lightly, but because I share Beauvoir's commitment to the idea that people become themselves in particular situations and in particular historical and cultural contexts, I think that the, what I would love to see is discussions of these kinds of questions that aren't made so much with reference to the ways that they're asked in America. And for my part in perpetuating that in today's lecture, my apologies. So we know now that implicit biases can shape our interactions with others. Uh, even people who belong to oppressed groups often carry implicit biases against those groups. But the knowledge of the, the inequalities that persist and the, the dangers of injustice that persist can leave a lot of people feeling powerless and asking what they can do. And so what I'd like to end with today is a couple of distinctions in contemporary philosophy that I find very useful as I'm thinking through some of these questions myself. Um, I've put the one-eyed monster cyclops there because I think it's easy as a human being to forget to look around and see how the world looks from other people's perspectives. And I think these are a couple of things that can help us do that charitably. So you are going to hear, if you continue with the AKC, a range of different perspectives on these questions of equality, difference, and identity. You're going to hear some institutional perspectives, which are from people working in Kings to foster an inclusive community. So you're going to hear something that's local and focus very much on this place of learning. Uh, you're also going to hear some global perspectives that look at stories of religious communities that have been dislocated from Africa to the Caribbean to London. You're going to hear sociologist perspectives. You're going to hear the stories of people who feel that their identities are split in different directions. So I think the distinctions that I think would be useful to take into that is first a distinction between skepticism and suspicion. So in a very good book by Merrill Westfall, he makes this distinction because skepticism is skepticism about the truth claims of what someone does or the evidence that is the basis for those claims. Suspicion is a different thing. It's about the motivations for the claim. And I think that in a lot of discussions about identity political issues or personal identity issues, people can be confused about whether they should be suspicious or skeptical. And so I think if you're, if you're uncertain of the factual accuracy of the claim or the evidence basis for a claim, one of the things that I think is most helpful for perpetuating conversations is to try to hold that suspicion at bay. Secondly, 
this is a distinction from recent work in epistemology between acquisition responsibility and revision responsibility. We grow up in societies where the depictions of groups of people are not always motivated by justice, to put it mildly. And so we acquire beliefs about the world on the basis of the media we consume. The relationship between media and implicit bias is a really interesting one that I think is being fruitfully explored. The point is that we all acquire beliefs which are sometimes wrong and sometimes hurtful. And in certain cases, the epistemologists are claiming that because this is such a widespread social problem, we shouldn't blame people, we shouldn't hold them morally blameworthy for the acquisition of those beliefs, but neither should we let them off the hook for revising them. So it's a basic philosophical commitment that when you find new evidence, you need to revise your beliefs. And I think in terms of looking at your own ignorance, which is part of the process of learning, you know, finding out things that you didn't know you didn't know, with this kind of grace, if you like, that distinguishes between how you've acquired what you believe and your responsibility for revising it, I think can be helpful. So that is all for today. And thank you very much for coming. Thank you for listening to the AKC podcast. If you have enjoyed this lecture, please click subscribe in your podcast app to receive future episodes. AKC, at the heart of King's thinking.